0: Over the course of three weeks, we're looking at a few parables that are unique to Luke's gospel. We can only find them in Luke, and last week we started off with the parable of the two debtors. This morning we're going to take our second trip with Luke to see his private collection of Jesus' teachings. This morning's passage will have several familiar elements to us. A lot of it will seem familiar, But the jarring parable in the middle is only found in Luke's anthology. It's right that it should jar us. Like Colin said in his instruction at the beginning, as we walk through the familiar, we should also be aware of the strange. Young theologians, I know that summer vacation is coming to an end soon, so like I told you last week, I'm going to try and keep it simple. I have one question. What do we need in order to pray? Not what things do you need to pray for, but what do you need to have, what do you need to possess already in order to be able to pray? Listen this morning and see if you can come up with the one thing you need when you start praying. This is the good news preached by Jesus Himself. And in a sense, overheard by us as Luke retells it. Luke chapter 7, verses, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And then he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. He will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me cannot get up and give you anything, I tell you, though he will not get up and give you anything because he is your friend, yet because of your shamelessness, he will arise and give you whatever you need. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. Lord Jesus, how appropriate that you should give me this passage to preach this morning. It's as if I knock on your door this morning with the same request. My friends have traveled here and they need to be fed, but I have nothing of my own to give them. Lord Jesus, while my pantry is empty, yours is not. You have whole storerooms filled with more good news than we could ever enjoy. Ever wrap our minds and our hearts around. So we come to you because we have nowhere else to turn. If someone is going to feed us this morning, it has to be you. You've told us that we cannot live by bread alone, but only by the words that proceed from your mouth that come to us by your spirit. The words that you impress on our hearts, the words that you use to change us to grow our faith and fill us with hope and establish our love. So this morning, would you feed us in your word and at your table? Amen. Please be seated. Earlier this summer, for personal reasons and because I've always loved the movie, I decided to read A River Runs Through It. It's a story of tragedy and beauty. and Much of the beauty in this autobiographical story lies in the simple truth of it. Towards the end of the story, in one of those quiet conversations between Norman McLean and his father, the Presbyterian minister turns to his son and says, Norman, you like to tell stories, don't you? Norman answers, yes, I like to tell stories that are true. Well, his father says, after you've finished your true story, sometime why don't you make up a story? And all the people that go with it, and only then will you understand what has happened to our family and why. In a way, this is what Jesus is doing for us in his parables Inside of His true story, inside the narrative of His redemption, He is making up stories and all the people that go with them, not for His own understanding, but for ours. These cryptic little stories let us know what's happening to us and why. In a lot of ways, preaching is no different. It may not look like it, but it's really just storytelling Sometimes we talk about the things that we ought to do for each other as a church. Under the headings of three verbs, we talk about hearing, and loving, and proclaiming. As a church, we take these three verbs from Deuteronomy 6 and Colossians 1. We've said together, these are the things we want to be about. These are the things we want to do regularly with and for each other. This is the way the Lord is growing us in the gospel I think we hear those, and everyone's good with hearing and loving. But preaching, proclaiming, sounds awkward. Proclaiming sounds hard. So here's the good news. It's surprisingly simple. Proclaiming is nothing more than storytelling. It's telling and retelling and reminding each other of the story that God is writing us into For most of us, it's a story that we already know. We just need to be reminded every day how the story goes. Sometimes in our worst moments, sometimes in our hardest weeks, we just need someone to remind us how the story ends. And in our proclaiming, in our storytelling, Jesus reminds us who we are and what we have. And so that's what he's doing for us with the parables, even the odd and the awkward ones. So we come to this passage and we ask the question, how do you tell the story of prayer? It's the sort of story you just kind of stumble into. Last week, Luke set a place for us at a very awkward dinner party Those of you who are here with us and worshiped with us know that all the right people, along with one of the very wrongest people, were there. Luke walked us around and he introduced us to everything in about three moves. He had us come in and sit down, and then he dismissed us in peace. We came in and we acclimated to feel just how awkward, just how offensive the whole scene was. And then Luke made us sit down to consider Jesus' riddle along with the other guests. But then, for those of us who have wept over our sin, those of us who have wept with joy at seeing it forgiven, Jesus dismissed us and sent us away with His peace, His overcoming, overwhelming shalom. Now this week, Luke is still our tour guide, but he doesn't escort us in. He doesn't introduce us to anyone. We're following him, and it's a little like we've fallen backwards into prayer. The way he starts our passage this morning, it's a little like we've caught up to Jesus half accidentally. Now we're standing at the back of the crowd, and we overhear this this Q&A, this question and answer with his disciples. We're walking along with a group of his followers, and as we turn a corner, there's Jesus just standing back up after a time of prayer. And that jogs someone's memory. Hey, Jesus, John taught his disciples how to pray. When are you going to do that for us? And so Jesus starts to tell us how to pray. And then he starts to explain it to us with one of his stories. Suddenly we haven't just fallen into prayer, we're swimming in it, and we're a little deeper than we can keep our heads above. This is more than we're ready for. So Jesus moves us through prayer in three segments, but we get lost in the first every time. After Jesus gives us what we ought to pray for in this version of the Lord's prayer, He moves to the nature of prayer. And His first story is more than we can handle. He tells the story about a man's need for bread and a reluctant friend. We hear that and we don't feel welcomed at all. In In fact, it sounds like he's saying God's not going to answer our prayers unless we annoy him enough and wear him down. Come to think of it, you and I have never felt so discouraged from prayer before in our lives. Jesus, do you mean to tell us that God will give us the things we ask for If we pester him, and if we do it enough, he'll give them to us, but it'll be reluctant? This isn't what we had in mind when we asked you to teach us about prayer. Maybe we should have checked with John. This isn't what we wanted to hear. Now, fully aware of the awkwardness of the passage, fully aware of the confusion, Calvin said this, in a discussion of this passage, he said, gentle, This prayer is the gentle invitation by which Christ assures us of God's fatherly kindness. But, as we are too prone to distrust, Christ, in order to correct this fault, also repeats the promise in a variety of words. I realize that wasn't an easy quote. That probably didn't clear up anything. But Calvin's right. It's the the repetition. It's the variety of words that we actually need. But it takes time. We misunderstand Jesus when we ignore his repetition and the variety of the words that he uses. We get lost because we try to understand this parable in the middle of the passage on its own. And that's not the way that he intends it. It's not just one story to be isolated, and dissected. It's one story in a string of several. So look at all three moves that Jesus makes in the passage. Two parables and a final statement of the Father's goodness. We have to have all three together to get any sense of them whatsoever. Viewed all together, they go something like this. Jesus says, after instructing them on what to say in their prayer... He says, prayer works like this. Suppose you needed bread from a friend, and he only offers it to shut you up. Or suppose your son needed food, and of course you gave it to him, because even if imperfectly and insufficiently, you do actually love him. Now, of course, if these things are true, how much more will your heavenly Father, whose love for you never wavers... How much more will he freely give you the Holy Spirit when you ask him? So, in stacking these things up, Jesus moves us through three things an uncaring friend, the imperfection of human parents, all the way to the goodness of God. Can you hear the argument mounting? Can you hear the way he's building it? It's as if Jesus said, How much more? How much more? How much more will your perfect Father delight Himself to meet your most desperate need? How much more will the Father give you the Spirit that you need more than life itself? More than any reluctant friend, more than any human parent, your Father who loves you perfectly will do this for you. Not just reluctantly, but joyfully. Now, it doesn't help us either that we have so much trouble recognizing biblical imagery. Even if we understand the progression, we still miss the thing that's being said. He should have had our attention when he said bread. That should have flooded us with memories from the rest of Scripture. This pleading for bread is not an uncommon scene in Scripture at all. In the curse, God declared that Adam would eat bread by the sweat of his brow. And then generations later, Jacob sent his sons to Egypt to find grain to make bread in the middle of a famine. And over 400 years later, the newly liberated children of Israel wander hungry in a wilderness. And they begged for bread and God rained it down for them. 1,400 years after that, Jesus came and declared himself as Messiah to be the true manna. The real bread, the bread of life that comes down out of heaven and feeds starving souls. We might miss it, but the ancient church never did. The early church, when they read this passage, couldn't help but see it this way. Origin and Chrysostom... Jerome and Augustine all saw this late night gift of bread as the Father sending the bread of life. Now, with Jesus as the bread freely given, then these three take on an even different tone. It is about the Father's joy in giving, but it's not only that. These aren't primarily stories about God giving us the stuff that we pray for. Jesus is explaining to us the way that God gives us Himself through prayer. We have the gift of Jesus, the bread of life. We have the Father nourishing us as children. And finally, the gift of the Spirit that we so desperately need. So with all these taken together in succession, Jesus moves us through the story of our salvation Bread for a friend and food for a son and the spirit given to the children of God. All of these work together to tell our story. In these made-up stories, Jesus is telling us our own. He starts us waiting outside the house in need of bread. And then having been given the bread of life, the son, now we have our adoption. And as sons and daughters, we receive our good and solid nourishment from the father. And then He gives us the Spirit. Not the introductory work of the Spirit. That's how we are made, sons and daughters, in the first place. Now this final piece, this is about the Father giving us the Spirit as we ask and as we need the abiding work and ministry inside us. In all of this, Jesus is not putting off the gift of the Spirit in an introductory way. In all of this, Jesus is pushing us toward the abiding, continuing, lifelong, overwhelming ministry of the Spirit in us. In all of these things, Jesus says that prayer belongs to His disciples. Prayer belongs to those already following Him. Jesus brings prayer to those whom He has taken for Himself. and all of these things, Jesus is saying that prayer, real prayer, prayer that needs, and prayer that's answered, and prayer that's joyful, and prayer that's changing and fulfilling, prayer like this is our cross-bought, resurrection-delivered privilege. So Jesus gives us prayer. We tend to think of it as a tool. It's not a tool, it's a privilege, and there is a difference. God has not given us prayer as a means to bend His will. In prayer, God is refashioning our wills after His own. Remember that the parable in the middle of the passage isn't about wearing God down and getting stuff. It isn't about begging and pleading until we frustrate Him enough to give Him the thing that He knows we don't need but we want. When we start to see it the right way, when we start to treat prayer like what it really is, God changing us, Then we start to get it. When we see prayer as a tool, when we see prayer as the means to our own ends, our understanding of prayer runs the wrong direction. When we talk about prayer the right way, or when the Westminster Confession or the catechisms instruct us on prayer, they use a term they talk about the means of grace. That term is significant. And the way that it's said is significant. To call it God's means of grace flips our tool-oriented view of prayer. It flips our methodological approach to prayer. Just give us what we want. We'll ask however you want, however we need to. Just give us the things that we're asking for. Prayer that's said like that, from a heart like that, doesn't see prayer as God's means of grace to us. It sees prayer as our ladder to God. In prayer, we do make requests, but fundamentally, prayer is not us reaching up. Pre- prayer is something God draws out of his people as he bends low in provision. So while Jesus is teaching us to pray, and while Jesus is explaining how prayer works and why it works the way it does, he's not letting us in on any methodological secrets. He's not giving you the key to get the thing that you want. And for that reason, this passage is never going to make it to the top of a bestseller list, seller list in a Christian bookstore. What Luke is offering us here is not his version of the prayer of Jabez. This is not 40 days to a fitter and more prayerful you. Don't miss it. Jesus isn't telling us about what you should bring to the table when you come to pray. Because there's only one thing we ever bring with us. When you enter prayer, you only bring one thing with you every time. Need. Just like last week's parable couldn't be seen clearly through dry eyes, we can't hold on to this week's parable with full hands. This prayer, and this understanding of prayer, and this understanding of the Father's grace, only belongs to the desperate and the needy. We saw it in the movements of his stories. I don't know if you caught it, but let's see if we can catch it this time through. Can you feel the desperation in each scene? A neighbor so desperate that he's willing to wake up an entire family at midnight to plead for bread because he has none. It's not a negotiation. It's not a barter. He brings one thing to the table. Desperate need. A hungry child asking his father for food. That child doesn't pay for the food. That child doesn't promise to earn his keep. He brings one thing. Urgent, desperate need. And then there's the one that we miss. The most desperate. The neediest request that we take so casually. Our asking for the work the continuing, remarkable work of the Spirit. And all of the desperation and all of the neediest and all of the neediness, that is the most urgent request in the whole string. We don't pray like we should, in the ways that we should, or as often as we should, not because we're missing out on some method, Not because we're missing out on the right words to say or the right order in which to say them. We don't pray the way we should because we're numb to our own desperation. We pray like people who have something to offer. We pray like people who need a little help, a leg up. That's why I don't pray more often. That's the reason that I don't pray as simply... And as urgently as I should when I do pray. My own prayers are anemic because I don't really see myself in need. I don't have to cry out for these things. I don't fall down and melt in desperation for the things that Jesus has told me to ask for. I don't need the kingdom of God. I live in a democracy I don't need daily bread. I just have to decide which restaurant suits me best for lunch after church. Like many of you are thinking right now. But we're not supposed to miss any of this. We shouldn't and we can't miss any of this. Jesus' argument, His how much more, isn't just a crescendo to show us the Father's willingness to answer prayer. It also builds all the way through as the needs become more and more and more urgent. Jesus is saying to us that our need for the Spirit's work far exceeds a friend's need to be a good host. Our need for the work of the Spirit is more desperate, more urgent than even a child's need to eat. The only thing that we need and the only thing that we have to bring with us into prayer is our own urgent, desperate need. And we rarely pray with the kind of desperation that sees our need this clearly This sermon isn't designed to make you feel desperate and to tell you to go try hard to be desperate. I hope that the message of this sermon is not, "Go out and be needy people." Part of the message of this sermon is that you are needy people. The good news for us in all of this is that Jesus has prayed for us, and Jesus is praying for us with the right kind of desperation. Do you remember when He prayed for us in the wilderness? While He fought hard and starved Himself against our own temptations? Do you remember when He prayed for us in the garden the night that He was betrayed? That He prayed then for the Spirit's work in us? He prayed for His own sacrifice the next day on the cross? And He did it with such desperation that He bled through His pores. Jesus, the Creator and the Sustainer of the cosmos, prayed to the Father for you with more urgency, with more desperation than you ever have, because He knows the urgency of your need better than you ever will. And more beautiful than that, He fulfills... He fills up, overflows, and provides all that you need. So he continues to pray for us now. Just the way he told Peter that he would pray for him. When he told Peter that Satan wanted to sift him like wheat, but that he would pray for Peter so that his faith would not fail. And all of your temptations, and all of your griefs, and all of your trials, Jesus is praying the same for you. Jesus knows the urgency and the desperation of your need. He prays for you and He invites you to enjoy the Father's kindness and prayer. And That's how He wants us to make the requests. That's how He wants us to pray for the things that He's given us in the prayer at the beginning of the passage. Father, bring the kingdom in its fullness because it's our only real hope and we have no way to bring it in ourselves. Father, give us bread. Give us the food that fills our stomachs and give us the Savior that fills our souls because we have no way to obtain it on our own. Father, forgive us and make us forgiving because we desperately need both. We have no way of producing or achieving either. Father, we need You to keep us away from temptation. Lead us far from it. Because we know, if left to ourselves, we'll chase it down. Father, hear our requests because of Jesus. Dead and buried and risen. Calling us as Your sons and daughters. Hear us and give us the Spirit. Give us His continued work in us because we cannot muster it up We cannot try hard enough. We cannot do any of these things on our own and we'll die without them. In all of these things, and in all of our seemingly mundane daily requests, God is not just giving us stuff. He's giving us more of Himself. So when you pray for the job that you desperately need, while you're asking for work, the beautiful and simple irony is that you're already receiving the Lord's work in you. While seeking God's change in your child's heart, you find the Lord changing the way that your heart is turned toward your child. And knocking around in the stress of your business in a down economy. You discover that the door has already been opened to the Lord's peace. He will gladly usher you in to find rest again. And all of these things, the Lord will be giving you His Spirit's work through His means of Prayer. Those of you who have stumbled into prayer with us this morning, but who would not call yourselves disciples, what does this passage offer you? What do all these odd little stories about prayer have to say to you, if you're just overhearing them from the back of the crowd? At the very least, all these stories give you a re-understanding of prayer. This is not the religious exercise of those who have all that they need already. This is not extra credit for piety. It's simply the desperate cry that is answered for all of the Father's loved children. And if you're willing to look a little harder, it says something more says if you need Jesus, if you desperately and shamelessly need the bread of life, if you're becoming more and more aware of your own hunger for His salvation, then ask. If you're not sure what all that means, if you don't know what to make of Jesus, You just don't know how to ask, how to believe, what to believe. If any of those things are true, but you're starting to feel the need. You're starting to feel the hunger pangs. Then come and find me afterwards. Or send me an email or call me in the office. Be glad to sit down and talk. Be glad to get coffee. Be glad to answer any of those questions. So we started off the morning with one question. How do you tell the story of prayer? In both of his stories, Jesus was explaining prayer by telling us what it's not like. It's not like the reluctant friend. It's not even like a human parent. So what would stories be like if they told us how prayer really is? Well imagine that you go to a house late, after dark, all the lights off. Because you need something you do not have. You go ready to knock on the door and plead and beg for bread. But before you can knock, as you walk up, you hear rustling behind the door. And it's not a stranger, it's not a neighbor, it's not even a friend. Your father answers. His arms are filled with baskets of bread. And the sun is loaded down with bottles of wine, aged cheese, and olives. And the Spirit walks through the door and says, We've been waiting for you. We spent all week preparing this feast. We've waited for you because we want to share it with you. You haven't actually knocked on the door yet. They come out to meet you and they bring you the feast. All that you need and more, to all you desperate and needy, cry out to the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and see God's joy in giving you more of Himself. Amen. Lord Jesus, we come to you desperate and needy, because it's all that we are. You never leave us desperate and needy. You always provide for us. Not meagerly and not reluctantly. Because of you. Because of all that you've done for us in your life. All that you sacrificed for us at the cross. Because of all the joy, all the power, all the majesty of your resurrection. Now the Father delights himself by meeting us. By providing for us, not just the stuff that we need, but our need for him. Because of you, the Father calls us sons and daughters. And because of you, the Father gladly gives us the Spirit. and The Spirit's abiding, continuing, and overwhelming work in us. How wonderful and beautiful and mysterious that through prayer, the Father is already giving us more of the Spirit's work. And so we come to you again this morning as those who are hungry, those who need bread we find that you have given us a table filled with bread and wine. And we ask that you would once again be kind to us here. That you would allow us to enjoy the feast that you have prepared. You would give to us holy comfort and joy. That here you would grow our faith and assure our hearts. That we have fellowship with you we have fellowship with one another only by your work not by our own let us come to these tables Lord Jesus and find ourselves filled and nourished let us walk away satisfied rejoicing and singing do all these things for us We cry out to you desperate and needy because we have nothing to bring and nothing to offer. But you, Lord Jesus, have everything to offer us and you give it freely. The Father gives to us freely. And the Spirit works in us and ministers to us freely. So we ask all of these things expecting and ready to see your goodness for us. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christians, along with the church in every age, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost.